Aida is quite simply the grandest, I think, of Verdi's grand operas. Generals lead their armies into the field. There are triumphal victory marches, rousing choruses, undying love, thwarted passion, and the obligatory ballet, and all in four acts. We're in a place that is simply described in the libretto as ancient Egypt in the time of the pharaohs, set along the River Nile with pyramids, sphinxes, and mysterious temples adorned with hieroglyphics that after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone in 1799, finally yielded up their linguistic and so their cultural secrets about Egyptian culture. This was a world that totally gripped the Europeans after Napoleon had led his soldiers and a small army of scholars to into the Middle East in 1798 to 1800. Indeed, the story that will become Aida was conjured up by Auguste Mariette, who was a French archaeologist who founded the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Though I have to say his reputation for great archaeological successes was challenged when he accidentally blew up an entire tomb. Aida was commissioned by Ishmael Pasha, the Khedive of Egypt, to celebrate the opening of that most European of institutions, a new opera house, the Khedivial Opera House in Cairo. Verdi was paid 150,000 francs, but the premiere had to be postponed when the scenery and costumes for the new production were marooned in Paris during the siege of the city in the Franco-Prussian War. The first performance before an audience of international dignitaries was a huge success, but Verdi himself did not go to Cairo. He chose to regard the first performance of his new work as being at La Scala in Milan in February 1872. This, he said, was the real premiere. What makes the opera popular is clearly the opportunity for spectacle in part. Everybody knows the great grand triumphal march in Act Two, in which the General Radames parades his captives and cartloads of booty before the pharaoh and his daughter Amneris. But it's the private, perhaps, quite as much as the public that tugs at our heartstrings and our ears. Radames in love with the enemy Nubian princess Aida. Aida offers a trio of great roles to its principal singers. Radames, the tenor, Aida, soprano, and Amneris, mezzo-soprano. But there is another character in the drama who is perhaps in some ways the most powerful of them all, the chief priest Ramphis, a bass. And three scenes in Aida are set in temples. As with the deeply sinister Grand Inquisitor in Don Carlos, Ramphis embodies Verdi's detestation of what he saw as the arbitrary power of the church that would imprison us all. Well, we have a splendid lineup of guests, a trio, to explore this new production of Aida. We're joined by the soprano, Gwyneth Rand, who is covering the role of Aida, and Murray Hipkin, who is a member of the music staff here at English National Opera and who's been working on this first production of the new season. But our first guest is tonight's director, Philip McDermott, making his second journey in this house to classical Egypt for English National Opera. He directed the award-winning production of Philip Glass's opera, Arkanaten. Will you please welcome Philip McDermott. Philip, with thoughts of Arkanaten in mind, um, and now Ida, I wonder if there's something about ancient Egypt that you find particularly attractive. Arkanaten, of course, being set in the time of the pharaohs too. Um, I mean, I'm, gu I'm guessing 
one of the reasons for asking me to do uh, the opera was because we'd done ancient Egypt. Um, and there's a, I think there's a particular challenge in, in doing ancient Egypt because there's a, I guess there's a, a, a high po potential for cliché. Um, and I feel like uh, we kind of had to tackle that with Akhenaten and then we had to tackle it again with uh, Aida. We did, Tom and I, the designer, did have a joke, which was when we were, when we were doing Akhenaten, um, we did say, uh, it mustn't look like a bad production of Aida. <laughs> so when we were working on Aida, we said, oh, it mustn't look like a bad production of Akhenaten. Um, just because I think, I mean, it's easy to go online and see some of the productions they tend, of Aida, for instance, as a, as a way of tackling uh, ancient Egypt, it, there's a tendency for them to be very kind of, I guess, blingy and brightly lit, not that atmospheric. Um, so I guess that was, uh, when we were working on Aida, having done Akhenaten, we sort of thought of it as a kind of sister production in the sense that we wanted a production that was perhaps more atmospheric, a little bit more kind of depth and mystery to it. Okay. We'll, come, we'll come back to that idea yeah. of mystery, if we may, later, because it's obviously central to what you've put on stage. But how long ago were you actually asked to direct Aida, and how long have you been thinking about it? Blimey. Uh, oh, well, actually, I was asked to do it somewhere else first, and I said uh, no to that. And then we were asked here, and... Uh, Tom uh, said, ah, that would be really exciting to do. So he said we should say it's Tom by your he's, uh, he's my designer, yeah, yeah, that we work with on this, in this show. And I, I guess that's a kind of key to it, really, because um, it's very important to me, the collaborators that I work with, and the idea that Tom was excited by it was, was a good you know, signal for me that that would be something interesting to do. Um, yeah. Was it a work that you knew before the invitation came? I mean, I don't think there are many people who don't know of it, and they, they, they know the, um, the kind of... the, the clichés about it, really, that uh, it is this, it, it's the archetypal massive uh, opera. Um, so I knew that about it, and, of course, uh, usually when you uh, say to someone, oh, we're about to start working on Aida, they, they go, oh, uh, what about the elephants? Um, <laughs> So there was, or the camels. Or the camels, exactly. Well, I think there's a production in Sydney at the moment on the beach which has real camels in. So uh, that, that, that's been well taken care of, I think. So there, there's some sort of... What I knew was that it has some particular challenges to it, that there's spectacle in it that the audience will want if they're coming to it, and you want to not disappoint them on that level. Um, but there's also a kind of challenge in the piece, which is, is it's... It goes from this massive scale to this extraordinary intimacy. In fact, of course, the end of it, just about as intimate as you can get, dying together with your lover in a tomb. Um, and to be able to include and deliver those two things in the production, I think, is the challenge of the piece. Is it important, I mean, I spent some time at the beginning in my introduction talking about the, the history of the piece. Is it important that we understand the historical context in which this piece was written? Here we are at the end of the 19th century. It's the period in which European nations are desperately scrabbling for empire. 
you know, by 1914, 90% of Africa will be owned mm. by most of Europe. Um, uh, 40 years before, it was about 20%. Mm. I mean, do we need to understand that? And do we need to understand, you know, that Napoleon had led this kind of extraordinary conquest to uh, Egypt to see another land, another place? I mean, I, I think, and this was present in both those productions, uh, I think there's something interesting about the fact that when you start, you go, oh, Aida, I wonder what, what myth it was based on. Mm. And it wasn't. It was basically made up. I think there's only one character, um, which is the, the, uh, Aida's um, father, um, Amanazra, who is based on a real mm. character. And it, even that is very vaguely based on a real warrior figure. It's an example... Uh, and I think you mentioned it, it, the, the the story was came from a dream that this archaeologist had. Mm. So it, it's more like a fairy tale mm. than it is a real kind of a real story. Um, and I think there is within it the kind of the Western fetishization of that exotic mm. sort of story. And so the idea that one might try and say for instance present a realistic version of what ancient egypt is i think is not something that i would be interested in because if you look at those pictures that are from that time when they were first discovering those ancient ruins it's an incredibly romantic version of and in a way the story is a kind of romantic you know, it's a, a, a romantic fairy tale based on their fantasies of what this was. And I think, in a way, our production does try and answer that in the sense that it doesn't go, this is what it was like in ancient Egypt. Uh, it, it goes, this has come from a dream, and what you'll see tonight is very much from the dream fairy tale landscape. So it's certainly not realistic. Those dream uh, uh, kind of figures are powerful because even when they were having romantic dreams about that period, there's something mythical and archetypal in those stories that mean that Aida is still being performed. Mm. So for me, that's what you need to tap into, mm. the deeper archetypal characters. One of the criticisms of Aida is that the, you know, the, the characters are a little bit as two-dimensional as hieroglyphics. So there's a challenge there to try and make the story emotional and to make it about the performers connecting with each other on stage. Um, so I think that's really, in a way, all you need to know to be able to respond to it as a, as a powerful opera is that it's a, a kind of archetypal fairy tale and there will be, you know, different productions that, that uh, do that in different ways. And it will continue to be done so. And this is the one that we have landed at now. And there are some things in there from modern day which are like, ah, if we tell that fairy tale today, there's an image there. So some of the solutions that we've come up with, and you may want to talk about that later, yeah. are kind of answers to that. Is it possible to speculate what Verdi found attractive in this story? Uh, I don't know if this is true, but I read that um, he didn't actually want to do it at first, and then um, the librettist said, oh, I, I think Wagner's quite interested in doing it. <laughs> so that might be one of the reasons that he, uh, he decided to do it. And it, I guess it's a, 
um, you know, it, it was a commission. So, mm. you know, uh, I think once you start working on something, he must have been attracted to the story, I mm. think, mm. and the, the, the mm. kind of the powerful kind of, you know, the, the emotional story that he could tell within that and the ability to present spectacle as it was a celebratory piece commissioned for the opening of the Opera House and so on. So you've got probably in that production some different things, some bits that he went, oh, I've got to put that in because we've really got to have a big procession that looks great, you know. Um, at, and at the same time, he wants to tell this wonderfully emotional story. Um, that's, that's my guess. Stay with us. Early because we're going to talk again later in a moment. And thank you very much indeed. Um, after we face some music, our next guest of a soprano, Gwyneth Rant, who's covering the role of Aida in this production, and Murray Hipkin, who, as I've said, is a member of the music staff here at English National Opera and who's been working closely on this production. Would you please welcome Murray Hipkin and Gwyneth Rand? <laughs> Gwyneth, one of the really cruel things um, about these pre-performance talks is you have to talk for your supper before you're allowed, <laughs> allowed to sing. Um, can we start with a very obvious question? Who, as you've worked on this production, do you think Aida is? Oh, I really do have to talk, don't I? <laughs> Good evening. In this production, gosh, she's many things. She is a, a slave, for one thing. She has to work in the court. She, nobody knows who she is, so that's something that's quite important during the whole thing, at least till mid-act two. She is loved by Radames, so you have that whole chamber opera aspect of intense love, an intense rivalry that you don't know actually exists between her and Amneris, the princess. Although Aida is a princess, but nobody knows it. Um, you have her within the court. She is a nobody. Nobody, she functions as someone that is different, but she functions just like everybody else. So she's quite multiple personality disordered, I would say. And this is made, of course, all the worse when unexpectedly, and unknown to anybody else but her, her father is taken prisoner after the great victory. I and mean, this must be a, a kind of pivotal moment as you're thinking about this character. This is the moment when you are absolutely torn between two utterly incompatible emotions. Absolutely. But it's a choice of family responsibility and country and love. And her love is also the enemy of her country just to make it a little bit more complicated. The, the, the most appealing thing, perhaps, about Aida is that she is scrupulously honest. Mm. No? <laughs> well, she doesn't tell anyone she's a princess, so she's not that honest. Honest in the sense about her emotions and her feelings? Well, only when pushed. When, she's, when Amneris realises that Aida is her love rival, then she's, you know, she finally admits it. But it takes a while to get her there. She avoids it as much as possible. 
because she's been trying for the entire time to avoid conflict. Mm. She just wants to go under the radar. Mm. So at that particular time, that's when all hell breaks loose, really. It's very hard, isn't it, with this opera, and maybe in this production, to escape from the contemporary, from where we are now. Families divided in time of war, the victors taking all. Uh, is this something that you've been thinking about as you've been preparing yourself for the opera? Okay, shall I lie or should I tell the truth? <laughs> um, this is my sixth production of Aida. The first time I thought about it. I didn't have to think about it so much at this time. And it, it's plainly obvious, the way that it's been staged. You, you, everything's there. So all you have to do is jump in and go on the roller coaster ride that is Aida in this particular production. It will lead you through the story and it will take you where it needs to take you. And, and what are the vocal challenges of the role? I'm going to quote... Mari, because this is just wonderful. For some people, it's very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to sing for us? Uh, we're going to do the first aria um, in English as Conqueror Returns. Return. I know, I do it every time. Um, it basically is talking about the fact that... Oh, God, she's, she does have it hard. She doesn't know what to do. She's going to see Radames possibly kill her brothers. He's going to be stained with the blood of everybody that she loves, the country that she treasures. What does she do? Does she, does she choose country? Does she choose him? It's a long way of putting that. Great, thank you.
Is there something very distinctive about the music Verdi writes for Aida? I, th uh, I think that um, we hear that, that um, melody in, in that aria. 
which actually, if I just take, go back to the prelude, very, very first thing we hear in the whole evening, very, very softly. Different key, of course. So there's no doubt who this piece is about. There's no doubt whose story it is. Um, and I think, that, uh, as Gwen's already talked about, the way her, her character, it, as you said, sort of bottling stuff up, when it comes out, it really comes out. And I think um, Verdi supported her with the most incredibly intense scenes. And, and there's an example of how Verdi musically signals who this woman is, and the phrase itself, with its rises and falls, in a sense, perhaps in its shape, tells us quite a lot about her. Is that true of the other characters? Does not, the music create the character? Not so much, to be honest. No, there are a few themes that are associated with, with people or with groups of people. And the next thing that we hear in the prelude, for example, is this. And that um, later comes to be associated with the priests and, as Phelan was saying earlier, arguably the church and the influence of the church on politics at the time and, and, and decisions of war and peace. Um, so that, that, that has some associations. But otherwise, no, we, we, um, Amneris has a tune, but it only comes twice, and I don't really know it means anything much, especially, <laughs> to be honest. And, and does the private world in this opera, the world of the three, the, the trio, the lovers, if you like, mm. differ musically from the grand public world of Egypt, its armies, its spectacle? Well, yes, of, of course, and every time you hear... You know, we're in some kind of fanfare situation, so it's <laughs> fairly, fairly often it's going to be lots of people and not elephants. Um, but the, the, um, the, the piece is really built with, it, with a, a long series of really extraordinary duets, and particularly that happened, that becomes the case in Act 3 and 4. After, act, after the interval, we don't see the ladies' chorus again, and we, don't, we do see the gents' chorus in this production, but we don't, they don't sing on stage in the whole of the second half. They sing off stage. So um, it, it, suddenly, it's, it suddenly changes character. And, and this series of, of duets um, are actually, in some respects, a bit of a throwback to the, the um, conventions of Rossini and Bellini especially. Um, in that they're quite carefully structured. And then as we get towards the end, you could argue that the last duet with, um, with uh, Radames and Aida in, in, the, in the tomb, which was radical for all kinds of reasons, um, scenically as well as musically, the whole thing disintegrates slightly and, um, and it becomes much more free form. Um, the, 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 the famous uh, split set, of course, which we see all the time. I mean, if anyone's seen the Ariadne at the Co at Covent Garden, where the entire thing's on a split set. When it was first seen, I believe it was um, considered to be very, very daring. And um, I think Phelim and Tom's solution to that is, is, is um, a tr sort of homage in a way, I think, to the, to, to the original stage direction of that. And I think you'll enjoy their solution. But yeah, the, it's, it's the duets that really make this piece, I think. It, it does Egypt, in any sense, that Verdi musically might have thought about it, creep into the score? One thinks always here of Puccini, who couldn't resist, you know, old Peking or Japan. I was going to say, I was going to talk about Madame Butterfly in that context. I mean, we all think, we hear Madame Butterfly and we think we know how Japanese music sounds. And of course, there are one or two Japanese melodies in that piece that we know about. And the same is true also of the Mikado. <laughs> but it's... Um, 
it's a bit like the black and white minstrel show. It's a bit in, it's indecent in a way. I think it's sort of pretending to be something exotic. I don't know how much research Verdi himself did, um, but there's plenty of local colour, um, usually with an oboe or a woodwind instrument doing something, maybe a little bit like this. If I can find it, two seconds. Um, I had this all lined up and I've lost the page numbers. Anyway, you'll you'll hear. Um, let me find it. Sorry. Lost it. It doesn't matter anyway. There's, oh, here's a, here's a little flute thing, which is very definitely. You can hear the sort of Eastern or Middle Eastern influences in there. there are, you'll, you'll hear them. They're quite a lot all the way through. Um, and all the religious music, the music in the temples, is, um, is a lot of it's composed on... on um, exotic modes so not the, not a, not the european scale so you'll hear a lot of that as well murray hipkin great friend thank you both very much indeed um yes a round of applause again absolutely <laughs> Phelim, you talked about tom pie who mm. designs with you uh, a lot um can you remember sitting down with him and being specific the two of you, about what you wanted to see? Uh, I mean, I, I think I mentioned earlier, we, we talked about it wanting to be kind of, have some mystery and atmosphere to it. Um, there was a, an initial uh, starting point for our design. Uh, when we were working on Acknarton, at the beginning of the piece, we had a, a number of projections on the front cloth, which were... Um, representations of uh, um, Egyptian hieroglyphics. And there was one particular hieroglyphic that we got really excited by. It's a very simple, uh, straight, uh, upright obelisk, kind of triangle shape, and then a straight line along, and then a straight line up. And it, it was something that really attracted us. And we said, that's, that's very interesting, because it, it look it's obviously, it's an ancient hieroglyphic. But actually, you could have picked that as a kind of modern logo or something. It's got incredible kind of timeless quality to it. And on a certain level, there's a feeling that we grew the whole design from that one, from that one image. We didn't know at the time, but um, uh, talking to some people from the British Museum, this hieroglyphic actually meant offering or gift. And we went, oh, yes, of course, that's a good <laughs> um, But that... that um, feeling of this wanting to create something that was modern but then did have this ancient Egyptian feeling to it was kind of it's in there in the whole design and if you look at um, the design that goes through the whole evening it kind of starts with that image and in each scene you will see an, a rhyme or an echo of that image throughout the whole piece and it, I would say that the piece kind of opens up uh, at the beginning, and then it becomes this kind of great open space with great, uh, extraordinary, kind of sometimes spectacular images. And then the end of the piece kind of closes, which in some respects is kind of what musically happens as well. It closes right down to the size of, a, of an enclosed tomb. Uh, so that, that was our kind of uh, initial design idea that we grew the show from. And it begins, and this is not a spoiler mm. because it, we shall see it, it begins with 
a sort of pyramid, doesn't it? Uh, well, it's an obelisk, I would say. But which it gets is... bigger, so the base gets bigger? Well, there's a, there is that, as I say, in that hieroglyphic, this, this shape. So, yes, it's not really a, a spoiler to say that there is a, this obelisk shape, which is a kind of icon, a, a kind of represents different things at different points. It represents the gods, it, de it represents um, the religion. Um, uh, and that goes sort of all the way through. I would say that that image opens out in the first... It's almost like the opera's trying to spill out from behind the, the curtain, as it were. And the three main characters in the initial scenes, we see them, I guess, sort of set off on their fates. Mm. So in this initial scene, which ends in this trio, where they're all singing about their different kind of situations, we see the destiny of them laid out, and then the kind of the curtain goes back to the open space, and then they're into the story that's going to take them where the fates will take them. And, and when you began to think about costumes for the principals, but also the chorus, huge chorus, what again did you uh, think that you wanted? I, I think I think we wanted it to be in that kind of dreamlike quality, in the same way that we did with Agnaton. And we wanted it to touch on today, but not get too specific. So again, I think people say, is that character supposed to be such and such a body? And you go, well, if you see that, yes. Um, so that it's open for interpretation in that way. There is one particular thing that we had to solve, which is the, you know, the elephant conundrum. What happens in, in the, the, the kind of victory parade? And I wanted that scene to mean something and have a story to it, which wasn't just about let's, you know, parade a kind of a, a spectacle. I wanted it to have some kind of resonance to the fact that it, a, a war really had happened. And I wanted it to maybe be able, for us today, to be able to kind of feel that as a tangible story. Um, so costume-wise, I think that had to land in some way kind of with, with modern day, and I think it does. I think there's a kind of gender thing in the piece, costume-wise, which is that the, the men are more like kind of modern, I guess, politician stroke power, kind of power <coughs> men, and the women are more kind of are more spectacular in their costumes. I mean, Aida has her own kind of uh, low-key version of that. But the, the, the women's costumes are kind of architectural and, and kind of uh, 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 shaped in extraordinary ways. Um, I think the issue of spectacle is there in some of the costumes, but I don't think this, you necessarily get the spectacle where you think you're going to get it. Um, so uh, having had one, and you'll see in the show, having had one solution to the, to the victory parade, in some respects, for instance, the, the scene with the high priestess mm -hmm. delivers the spectacle more than perhaps it usually does. That's a character who's usually off stage. Mm -hmm. um, but we've brought her on stage and we see a kind of ritual happen that on many levels is really uh, very spectacular. Um, the, the, the usual ballet is a kind of silk ballet, which is kind of the, has a kind of feminine 
dreamlike quality to it. Um, and I think the whole piece and, and the costumes have that dreamlike quality where sometimes you go, oh, that person's wearing a modern costume, but it's got an ancient Egyptian quality mm. to it. Mm. I, the sense I had was of something wonderfully unsettling mm. because what it kept saying was everybody has constructed in this opera and elsewhere, but particularly in the opera we're now looking at, their own version of some place called Egypt. Mm. Uh, in a sense, we, we can't be certain. And every time the scene changes, you know, the meaning that you thought you'd carefully pin down eludes mm. you. There's a kind of amb ambiguity about mm -hmm. this place all the time. You're never certain. I mean, I think that's probably right. And I think my, my feeling about how to make things relevant, uh, and it may work, may not, is that one has to tap into the audience's dreams. And that's the kind of... The, the kind of um, the depth that I wanted there. I wanted it, the piece to be kind of... It, it, not those characters, not just to be kind of like hieroglyphics, but to be more like characters that you meet in your dreams, you know. Mm. And, and often in your dreams, you do get a strange mixture of a person who is mixed up with someone else that you know. And I think the show's a little bit like that. Yeah, it's... Important that we remember your daytime job is one of the is a founding artistic director of the Improbable Theatre Company, and there are people that you've worked with, uh, astonishing people in this show, aren't there? Uh, do you, uh, you're talking about the, the skill. The well, the skill uh, I mean, most of the time, if we put an opera on, there will be a, a kind of skills ensemble, and we work with a company called Mimbre, who are a, a group of extraordinary uh, female acrobats and they are facilitating a lot of the images they are creating some of the on-stage kind of um, uh, body kind of structure architectural structures that are there um, that figures in the I would say more in the first of course in the first half of the piece where you're, you're there's a demand for kind of spectacle and images and so on um, but there usually is in our in our in our um, answers to the the challenge of putting on uh, operas in this day and age there's usually a performance element which on some levels binds together the the kind of um the the, the thing of that is opera which is all these different elements the visual the sound and the emotional high drama that that can happen in an opera we have a little time in hand so we could take some questions ladies and gentlemen from you in the audience there is the roving microphone about to rove. If you'd like to ask any of our guests a question, put your hand up and catch my eye. Who'd like to start? In the front row. Hold on, hold on, wait for the microphone. Just from my curiosity, have you ever been to Egypt? Have you been to those places? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, in fact, our first show as Improbable was a show that um, went to the Cairo International Experimental Theatre Festival 20 years ago. And uh, it was an extraordinary, uh, uh, wonderful event for us because we won an award uh, for the best show in that festival. And it was presented to us in the Cairo Opera House. So there was a little bit of me in the question of like doing aid. Well, there's a little story there that felt like a, a kind of a, a nice thread for me. Uh, so there's a, 
I mean, I have a particular feeling of having been to Egypt and what that wonderful, extraordinary place was like. Um, so, yes. Did it actually... Can, can we um, take another question, I think? Yeah, will it, yeah just, did it really help you to, to do the production? Were you affected by, by what you have seen there or experienced? I would there. say yeah, yes, in the sense that I talked about earlier, is that it's now a place that's in my dream landscape as a as a powerful place. So uh, rather than go, I'm going to make it look like ancient Egypt. It's this more kind of it's it's on that deeper level. Yeah. Do we have another question? Anybody else like to ask a question? We're being wonderfully English and quiet. <laughs> maybe, maybe, Philip, you've mm. so encouraged them to go that they've nothing to ask. Um, ladies and gentlemen, some thank you. Thank you to all of you. A reminder that you can hear uh, what we've been talking about again, if you like, on the English National Opera website. Uh, a reminder that we're here before each of the productions this season, uh, the seven that follow this. Um, and, of course, our last thank yous are to our three guests. Thank you all very much indeed for being with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the show.